From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Wednesday, September 26th. I'm Marco Werman. Egypt's new president makes his debut at the U.N. Mohamed Morsi vowed not to rest until the civil war in Syria ends. Plus, what New York cab drivers make of the General Assembly and what they want world leaders to tackle. The drones, I heard, are killing large civilians. I hope the U.N. will do something about it. The drone thing. The drones. And later, reaction to Iranian universities limiting what women can study there. I don't think Iranian women will put up with it. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, hosting 25 global heroes at the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon on October 7th. Join Medtronic Global Heroes on Facebook to celebrate these extraordinary athletes, all running with medical conditions such as heart disease, diabetes, or Parkinson's disease. The Medtronic Global Heroes, a diagnosis didn't end the run. And by WGBH, producer of Masterpiece. The saga continues at 165 Eaton Place, and the lives of masters and servants have never been so captivating as new arrivals may Make their mark and dark secrets are revealed. A new season of Upstairs, Downstairs, Sunday, October 7th at 9, 8 Central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Our program usually begins with news that is either literally or figuratively earth-shaking. Today we start with something that's out of this world, literally. The headline could be something like this. Earthlings see the first stars born after the Big Bang. Amazing, right? The Hubble Telescope has just completed a photographic project that NASA calls the Extreme Deep Field. It's a compilation of some 500 hours of photography, all of it focused on the same patch of space. And what that picture has captured is nothing short of incredible. A photo of galaxies so distant that they stretch back almost to the time when the first stars began to shine, give or take a few million years. We've got the picture at theworld.org. Meantime, down here on terra firma, it was a special day for Egypt's new president, Mohamed Morsi. He made his debut today before the United Nations General Assembly. Morsi gave a fiery, wide-ranging speech. He put the cause of Palestinians at the top of his address, calling for an immediate end to what he called the colonization and occupation of Arab lands. It is shameful that the free world would accept that a party in the international community may continue to deny the rights of a nation that looks to independence over decades, no matter what justification. It is also shameful that settlement continue on the territory of this people, the Palestinian people, and prevarication continues. In, uh, over implementing international resolutions. Morsi's most passionate plea, though, was for an end to the war in Syria. He said the conflict there should be resolved without foreign military intervention. This crisis we are all responsible for, this suffering, we all have to move the world over to put an end to this tragedy. It is the tragedy of the age, and our duty is to end this tragedy. And in a nod to the concerns of neighboring Israel, Morsi underlined his government's willingness to uphold international agreements. 
Finally, President Morsi turned to an issue on the minds of many Muslim leaders gathered at the U.N. He referred indirectly to the video mocking the Prophet Muhammad, which sparked widespread protests in Muslim countries. Egypt respects freedom of expression. Freedom of expression that is not used to incite hatred against anyone. Not a freedom of expression that targets a specific religion or a specific culture. A freedom of expression that tackles extremism and violence. Not the freedom of expression that deepens ignorance and disregards others. While Egypt's first post-uprising president spoke in New York, another of the Arab Spring's revolutions was marking a somber moment. In Libya, a former rebel fighter who was hailed as a hero was laid to rest today. Omran Ben Shaban was just 22 years old. His hero status came from the fact that he was there when the toppled dictator Muammar Gaddafi was captured last year. Shaban was one of the rebels who grabbed Gaddafi as he emerged from a drain pipe. A couple of months ago, though, the tables turned. Shaban was kidnapped by Gaddafi loyalists and tortured. He was eventually released but died from his wounds this week. Dirk van de Valle is associate professor of government at Dartmouth College and an expert on Libya. Professor van de Valle, what was Shaban's role in the capture of Gaddafi exactly? Do you know? As far as we know, there was a number of militiamen on the morning that Gaddafi uh, was discovered. Um, He had fled into a pipe, and a number of the militias, including this young man, discovered him in that pipe, and he indeed was one of the young men that uh, uh, grabbed Gaddafi as he came uh, from uh, from that drainage pipe. And is it known whether he was one of those people who either abused the dictator or helped in the actual killing of him? It's really not known. There was so much confusion and chaos at the time. The the video that we've seen, and there are multiple versions uh, of these videos, Um, show an enormous amount of confusion and chaos uh, and several men surrounding Gaddafi. So it's not absolutely clear uh, what exactly happened, who abused Gaddafi, and uh, who ultimately pulled the trigger that killed him. And then two months ago, Shaban was captured by presumably Gaddafi loyalists, tortured. Did, Did the kidnappers know who he was? Was that why they went after him? Again, it's not very clear. And in Libya, uh, of course, there is this kind of lingering chaos. There is this tit-for-tat that several militias are engaging in uh, toward each other. Um, And so he may have been known or he may have not uh, been known. No one really knows at this particular point in time. I mean, we saw during the, during the riots in Benghazi around the U.S. consulate just kind of what divisions exist in Libya right now. But it is surprising to see how active Gaddafi loyalists still are in Libya. How divided is the country? I think the, the activism of the Gaddafi loyalists is perhaps a bit exaggerated. Um, while there still are undoubtedly uh, loyalists, and certainly around Baniwali, uh, one of the cities, of course, that has been central in, in this uprising and where the, the loyalists of the Gaddafi loyalists held on to power for the, the longest time. Uh, but overall, it's quite unclear in Libya because, again, of all the competing militias that exist, both militias that were involved um, in the actual civil war, but also a number of rogue militias that have appeared um, after the civil war. It's not always clear uh, what exactly is happening Uh, again, within this general climate of of chaos uh, and upheaval that uh, Libya still exhibits today. Meantime, you know, many who uh, were opposed to Gaddafi are are really hoping that some kind of justice uh, comes through for Shaban. Uh, Apparently, Shaban's brother runs a militia in Misrata and is vowing revenge if the government fails to deliver justice. What are the chances of that happening? 
one of the big problems of, of Libya ever since the end of the civil war has been that there are uh, these multiple militias. In the case of Misrata, there were over 100 militias at one particular point in time. And the problem is that the government simply does not yet have the capacity to really control these militias. They've tried to incorporate them uh, through several ways, bringing them in, into the army, bringing them into security organizations, and a number of other measures. Uh, but that is still very, very incomplete. And indeed, the government, at least for some of its security functions, still relies on some of these militias. Um, so what has happened after the, the killing of Ambassador Stevens is that the government is now trying to make a more forceful um, effort to bring some of these militias under control and particularly to rein in these rogue militias. Uh, but my hunch is that this is a process that will take years. Does that raise concerns for you about the potential for some kind of civil conflict if you've got all these militias kind of doing their own justice? Obviously, it's not an ideal situation where you have a government that does not have the monopoly of violence. Uh, that is, the government simply cannot control the territory of Libya at this particular point in time. But on the other hand, I think we've seen a, a good number of steps forward um, that seem to indicate that the power of the government in Libya is gaining some traction. Now, it's very slow. It's still very incomplete. But bit by bit, um, I think the government really is becoming a true government in a sense. And it's really engaged in an effort of building up the state in Libya that has never really existed. So on the one hand, I'm cautiously optimistic. Uh, and certainly, I hope that the government can get these uh, militias under control. But again, I think it will be a long-term process. Dirk van der Valle, associate professor at Dartmouth College, who is at the UN General Assembly this week in New York. Thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. With all those diplomats and world leaders in town for the UN General Assembly, traffic is a nightmare. Streets around the UN are closed or restricted for security reasons. Reporter Bruce Wallace went out to see how New York's taxi drivers are faring and what they're thinking about the UN meeting. There are some things about the General Assembly that all cab drivers seem to agree on. It's awful for one. Driving anywhere takes forever. Often, passengers just give up, get out, and walk. Kashawn Walayat had a fare yesterday who needed to get near the UN. She was disabled, and walking wasn't an option. She got no choice, so I have to take there. So I took her there, and she appreciated, but she said, thank you for your patience, too. <laughs> there was also a certain numerical motif that emerged. I stuck like 35 minutes. Almost taking like a 35 minutes. I took 35 minutes through the 59th Street Bridge. When the General Assembly is in town, it seems even the shortest journey, two blocks, say, takes 35 minutes. Once you get into geopolitics, though, cabbie perspectives diverge. Most drivers I talked to didn't have opinions about what the General Assembly was talking about. They weren't paying that much attention. But what it should be talking about? They had opinions about that. Fakir Mustafa is originally from Bangladesh. He's been driving a cab in New York City on and off since the late 90s. He wants the UN to talk about innocence of Muslims, the video that sparked protests in Bangladesh and many other Muslim countries because of its ridicule of the Prophet Muhammad. He's a holy man. He's a prophet from God. And prophet for not only Muslim, for only like Christian, Jew, for everybody. I asked Mustafa if he thought President Obama went far enough yesterday in his address to the UN, where he called the video crude and disgusting, but said protecting free speech was essential. Mustafa said Obama needs to take some sort of action to stop videos like that from being made. Ismail El-Noor listened to Obama's speech in his cab and thought the president covered a lot of bases. 
But if he had the UN's ear, Alnor says he'd tell them about the troubles still roiling his homeland of Darfur in Sudan. Everybody have his own problem. I'm as a Sudanese, I have my own problem. I'm as a Darfurian, I have my own problem. It's going on. I need uh, action on the ground from the UN to solve this problem as soon as possible. Another driver, Jalal Mack, came to the U.S. from Morocco in 2004. What does he think the General Assembly should be focused on? The drones. I heard I could a lot of civilians. I hope the U.N. will do something about it. The drone thing. The drones. Mac, who says he'd earned a master's degree in international relations back home, got plaintive when I asked him about Syria, a central subject at the U.N. this week. These people are getting killed every day. It's crazy. I always skip Syrian issue every day. I have my, on my iPhone here, I have the Huffington Post. That's why I read my news right here. And every time I see the Syrian issue, I skip it. I skip it. Because it's a heartbreak. I mean, I don't like it. Max says if he could tell the members of the General Assembly one thing about Syria, it would be to look to the military intervention in Libya as a model. Most cabbies I talked to didn't think much action would come out of this week's meetings. Alongside this pessimism about the power the UN does wield, though, was often an optimism about the power the UN could wield. Mohamed Zaini is from Indonesia and has been driving a cab for two years. Before that, he drove a limousine. He says it's simple what the UN should be talking about. Should talking about peace. Peace. And do it, not just talk. Zaini was driving me toward the UN. Soon we were stuck in traffic. I asked him how people should get around Manhattan when the General Assembly is in town. The best way, walk. <laughs> you take any transport this time, it's not good. He thought a minute, then amended that. Take a cab as far as you can, then walk. For The World, I'm Bruce Wallace, New York. Later in the program, why a national park in Haiti is a problem on PRI Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic, joining with the World Heart Federation to celebrate World Heart Day, September 29th, with a focus on women, children, and heart disease. Learn more at Medtronic.com. And by Half the Sky, turning oppression into opportunity for women worldwide. A two-night special starting Monday, October 1st at 9, 8 Central, on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Bookstores, get ready. J.K. Rowling's written a new book titled The Casual Vacancy, and it hits the shelves tomorrow. My colleague Alex Galifant is here. And Alex, what can we expect? Darkness and wonder, Marco. This is a tale of muggles, of a small village churning with secrets. Printeramus, cried the publisher, little brown, his cape swirling in well, the smoke. Wait a second. Stop. I, I know this story well enough, Alex, to know that there's no Harry Potter, no dark arts. What, what, what's going on? Harry Potter. It's, it's just so hard to think of J.K. Rowling without that little boy wizard now. I mean, even she can't let it go. In an interview with our friends at the BBC, J.K. Rowling said the years of Potter pressure forced her to rush at least two of the books. She's still talking about it. There are a couple of the Potters that I definitely knew that they needed another year where I had to write on the run. And I read them and I think, oh, God, maybe I'll go back and do a director's class. I don't know. Well, I guess, Alex, after Harry Potter, J.K. Rowling can write pretty much whatever she wants, even if that means rewriting Harry Potter. Yeah, in fact, she said Harry Potter has liberated her. No part of me felt, right, got to prove. I had nothing to prove. Now, I don't mean that in an arrogant way. I can pay my bills every day. I am grateful for that fact. 
I don't need to publish. So J.K. Rowling says she only writes now if she genuinely has something she wants to say on the page. And right now, that's her new novel, The Casual Vacancy, I guess. Exactly. And it's very, very different to Harry Potter. <laughs> uh, it's got poverty, drug taking, a portrait of teenagers who are self-harming. Some are calling it a, a kind of Dickensian portrait of a small community. And it's very much written for adults. So no dark arts, but it is dark art. And the title, what does that refer to? It's a bit of jargon from English local politics. Uh, one of the plots in the book revolves around a parish council. It's kind of like the smallest administrative unit there is in England. Uh, a casual vacancy is when a parish councillor either resigns or is disqualified from office or dies while in office. And that's exactly the jumping off point for this book. And the parish part of that title, the parish office, that refers, I guess, to a, a local church? Kind of. Today, parish councils in England are civil bodies. They're not religious. But yes, the local parish means a small geographical area with a local parish church and a, a parish priest at its heart. And it's conflicts in one of those communities that J.K. Rowling's book is in part about. Well, that's a very good point to pivot because that actually fits with something else in the news today, developments in the Church of England. Right. So we're moving away from J.K. Rowling now. Um, churches in the UK, parish churches, are, as you say, part of the Church of England. And that itself is part of the global Anglican Church. You know, Anglican churches all over the planet. Mm. And both bodies are led. The principal priest is the Archbishop of Canterbury. That's currently Dr. Rowan Williams. He's not like the Pope in the Catholic Church who has full jurisdiction, if you like, over Catholics everywhere. With Anglicans, it's more about moral authority. He's supposed to be a kind of a supreme spiritual leader. And today in England, they're starting the process of picking a new Archbishop of Canterbury. Now, here's one of the people being talked about for the job, a British bishop by the name of Graham James. The Archbishop of Canterbury's role is uh, a hugely important one, but of course it's a massively demanding one because you have loads of expectations placed upon you, but relatively little power. Now, he mentioned big expectations. What kind of things? Well, right now, the job is in large part just about keeping the Anglican communion, the global Anglican church, just keeping it together. In the 10 years that Rowan Williams has been Archbishop of Canterbury, Anglicans have been painfully divided uh, over things like gay marriage or allowing women and gay men to become priests. I mean, think of conservative Anglican churches in African countries, for mm. instance. None of these issues is settled. So it's kind of an impossible job. Right. And so why would anybody want this impossible job? It's not something you're supposed to want. It's something you're called to do by God. And here's the Bishop Graham James again. I'm fairly sure that the whole process will lead, I hope and pray, to God choosing somebody other than me. And if he gets the nod... Well, I, I shall pray a lot more. <laughs> <laughs> the world's Alex Galifin. Thank you. Thanks, Marco. Sad news now from the entertainment world. Crooner Andy Williams has died at the age of 84. His solo singing career began in the early 1950s with TV appearances on The Tonight Show. He later became known for his signature rendition of Moon River. But it was his own TV show that made Williams an international star in the 1970s. The show aired in Britain on the BBC, and that was the start of a love affair between the British public and Andy Williams, a love affair that would grow with time. In 1990. In 1999, Andy Williams' version of the song Music to Watch Girls By was used in a commercial for Fiat. The boys watch the girls while the girls watch the boys who watch the girls go by. I do I. That ad sent the song up to the top ten on British charts and led to a new following for Andy Williams. 
Darren Henderson was an executive with Sony Music in London. He worked with Andy Williams to market his music and manage his UK tours. Henderson and Williams became friends. Uh, Darren Henderson, what was your first reaction today when you heard this news? Well, clearly great sadness. We clearly knew that uh, Andy had been unwell for a little while. And so, obviously, our thoughts go out to the family in particular, to Debbie, his wife, to his three children, Bobby, Noel, and Christian. Well, you can tell us uh, how Andy Williams actually reacted when this song, Music to Watch Girls Go By, kind of became an unexpected success again on the British charts. How did he react to that? First and foremost, Andy was, although an international celebrity, meeting, dealing with him and spending time with him in person, he was like you or I, you know, he was a regular guy who uh, was very personable uh, and liked to listen to what you had to say. And that's where our conversation started. He listened to um, what was going on here in the UK, this um, somewhat out-of-the-blue phenomenon of the music to watch girls by being used in a TV commercial. And we put a proposition to him to come over to the UK and do, a to begin with, a, just a small promotional tour, which was received so phenomenally well, reconnecting Andy with the British public. Now, he got a lot of fans during those tours in the UK. Um, I'm wondering, though, with this recent uh, kind of second life uh, with music to watch girls go by, did he pick up a, a new fan base? He certainly did. Here in the UK, back in the late 90s, there was a scene brewing, an, an easy listening music scene, and cool lounge clubs were propping up all over the place. One of his beers was ending up singing in a supper club. But here, that meant something very different. It was a very cool thing, not somewhere where artists end their careers. It was quite the reverse. So there were a number of clubs. One in particular was a night called the Kitch Lounge Riot here in London in the Café de Paris. And some 50 years after Andy last performed at the Café de Paris, we brought him back to London to play again with his full band in that venue. Darren Henderson worked with Andy Williams. Williams passed away today. He was 84. We'll have Andy Williams songs and videos at theworld.org, including this one, Andy Williams' duet with British TV host Denise Van Outen. Darren, our condolences to you and Andy Williams fans uh, worldwide. Thank you very much for taking with us. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Coming up, a move to evict squatters from a national park in Haiti brings bloodshed. Haiti has become like a sand castle, melting at every rainfall, because people are doing things everywhere as they want. It's a total anarchy. That story ahead on the world. 
WERIs, the world is supported by Medtronic, hosting 25 global heroes at the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon on October 7th. Join Medtronic Global Heroes on Facebook to celebrate these extraordinary athletes, all running with medical conditions such as heart disease, diabetes, or Parkinson's disease. The Medtronic Global Heroes, a diagnosis didn't end the run. And by Half the Sky, turning oppression into opportunity for women worldwide. A two-night special starting Monday, October 1st at 9, 8 Central, on PBS. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Iran's President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad spoke before the United Nations General Assembly today. He called for a new world order, one not dominated by Western powers that have, in his words, entrusted themselves to the devil. One issue that Ahmadinejad did not raise is women's education. Iran has come under fire recently because of new restrictions on what female students can study there. 36 Iranian universities have banned women from a range of subjects in their undergraduate programs. Those subjects include chemistry, engineering, mathematics, accounting, and education. Hala Esfandiari directs the Middle East program at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in Washington. She's written about this decision by Iranian universities for the Chronicle of Higher Education. Hala Esfandiari, this decision apparently was not taken by Iran's Ministry of Higher Education, so it wasn't a policy change at the national level. It's individual universities that are doing this. Why? I believe that it was a decision taken by the government, by the Ministry of Science, Research and Technology. But since they didn't want to come out as being the mastermind behind this decision, they instructed the universities that they have a free hand in barring women from as many fields of studies as they wish. Some universities went along. Other universities didn't go along. Mm. What do you think is the premise behind this decision, that there are some fields of study and some professions that are, are not really geared toward women? No. I think it has two main reasons. One is that there are more educated women than men in the country. And this has created a lot of concern among the conservative leadership and in the uh, clerical community because they see that these educated women refuse to marry less educated men. Mm. So this is one concern. The second concern is that they believe and this uh, that more women will have access to employment than men. And being an Islamic country, the man should be the breadwinner in the family. So these conservative communities think that Women are taking away jobs from men, which is not the case because only 12% of women who finish higher education have access to employment. Um, Let's talk for a moment about how Iran successfully closed the gender gap in the educational system in the first place. They've got the highest ratio in the world, according to the UN, of of female to male students right now. Was there a period when male students were the majority? And what policies were created that specifically encouraged uh, women to go to university? Look, one of the articles of the Iranian constitution 
specifies the equal access to education for all citizens. The main change that took place in Iran during the Islamic Republic was that women were free to apply to any college, any university around the country, and the families allowed their daughters to travel, to go and uh, you know, study in a different city. Just to give you an anecdotal example, I used to have a regular taxi driver when I visited Iran. Mm. On one of my trips, he said he'll be gone for three days. And I said, where? And he said, oh, my daughter got accepted at the branch of the free university in the city of Isfahan. And I'm taking her there. And she and uh, three other girls are sharing an apartment together. I couldn't believe my ears. You know, he comes from a middle-class background. He's a taxi driver. Well, I was going to say, I mean, it seems like a really telling anecdote that would indicate ordinary citizens want their daughters educated. I would imagine you're pretty concerned about a change now, a reversal in the trend of this gender dynamic in education and professional settings. Oh, sure. But on the other hand, I don't think Iranian women will put up with it. And I believe that they will find the right field of studies in their district or hometown or even maybe in the state they live. And then they will complement that with studying also on the Internet. Almost every family has access to the Internet. So they will compensate the lack of access to practical education with an online education. Hale Esfandiari is the director of the Middle East Program at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in Washington, D.C. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. For today's GeoQuiz, we're tracking some pizza rustlers, namely cheese pizza rustlers. Police in southern Ontario are investigating an unusual case that involves some pizzerias. It's no joke. It seems someone has been smuggling pizza ingredients north across the U.S.-Canadian border. Smuggling cheese isn't quite as serious as bringing in drugs or other contraband, but it's still illegal. So for our quiz, we want you to name a Canadian town that's located along the Niagara River. That's the river that flows from Lake Erie to Lake Ontario. In this town, police have been paying visits to joints like Super Mario's Pizzeria to investigate the cheese smuggling racket. We're back with the answer in about five. Protesters clashed with police today on the streets of Athens and Madrid. Anger continues to mount in Greece and Spain over government austerity measures. Greeks and Spaniards are being forced to make painful cuts to deal with their country's mounting debt. Not so in South Korea. That country emerged from the 2008 global financial crisis largely unscathed. But now some observers are worried that South Koreans are piling on too much debt. Jason Struther has a story. Open Gangnam Style! Here in South Korea, Gangnam Style isn't just a video with a funny dance that's gone viral. It's a way of life. Gangnam is a district south of the Han River, but it's not just about sexy ladies and posh clubs. It's also associated with moving up the social ladder, and some families start their ascent by putting their kids into expensive schools here. 
That's why Chun Sun Kyung's family moved to Gangnam. The 48-year-old says she wanted her teenage daughter to attend one of Seoul's best tutoring schools to prepare for the university entrance exam. 예, Living here in Gangnam means that you're sending your kids to the best schools and giving them more opportunities in life. It's one of the most important things we can do for our children. But it comes at a price. Chun and her husband had to take out close to a $100,000 loan to pay the deposit for a new apartment. She does her grocery shopping in other, less pricey neighborhoods. She says the family can no longer save money. This Gangnam style is prompting fears of an America-style debt crisis in South Korea, say some observers. Baek Song-jin is a financial advisor who helps people in Seoul file for personal bankruptcy. Baek says the situation is pretty similar to what's happened in the United States. He's seen two to three times as many people going broke and declaring bankruptcy than he did a year ago. Bake says inflation, a slumping real estate market, and high-interest loans are all taking their toll. He points to figures released by the Bank of Korea that show household debt is nearing $600 billion. The average family here spends one and a half times their disposable income. That's a little more than what Americans were spending just before the start of the subprime mortgage crisis in 2008. Tom Coiner, president of Soft Landing Consulting in Seoul, says South Koreans are racking up debt in similar ways. Take out six, eight or more credit cards, and once they maxed out, then realizing that they couldn't pay off the balance, they started up taking out loans and being financed by other credit cards and do it so that it's constantly uh, moving the debt around from credit card to credit card. It wasn't that long ago that Korea was a nation of savers, but stagnant wages, a high cost of living, and a desire to spend in order to achieve a better social position are leaving families in the red. Jung Yong-sik is an analyst at the Samsung Economic Research Institute in Seoul. He says Korea's overspending is the result of modern myths. One is that property value always goes up. Another myth is education is the best way to increase their the social position. Jung says real estate loans and private education are the main expenditures driving Korean households into debt. He prescribes austerity to deal with the problem. The most important things to solve debt in South Korea is the belt tightening. Chun Sun Kyung says her family has done some belt tightening since moving to Gangnam. But the sacrifice is worth it. She says her daughter is getting a better education and may be able to enroll in a top university. But she is concerned that Korea's overspending will get the nation into trouble. The Korean economy seems to follow America's. And when I speak to my friends in the U.S. and they tell me about how bad the situation is there, I get worried that we'll face the same problems. Chun says once her daughter gets out of high school, she plans to move the family out of Gangnam. For The World, I'm Jason Struther in Seoul. We're back on the case now of those cross-border pizza cheese smugglers we told you about in our GeoQuiz. It seems someone's selling contraband American cheese to Canadian pizza joints. CBC News reporter Dave Seglins has been covering the story. Dave, we're talking about Super Mario's Pizza and another place called Zeppi's Pizza. Where are these pizzerias in question? Well, they're on the Canadian side. Super Mario's is in a place called Port Colburn, and Zappi's Pizzeria is in Niagara Falls, Canada. 
Now, I have to say that these places both provided us with evidence that they'd been approached by smugglers of cheese. Sounds funny. Yes, I know. They were approached by people who said that they could offer them a large supply, weekly shipments, caseloads, truckloads of brick and mozzarella cheese from the U.S. at a cut rate. Now, both of these stores, I have to say, insist that they never bought it, but uh, the story gets more intriguing once we begin looking into who might be behind it. Right. Well, tell us, first of all, where the allegation came from in the first place, that contraband cheese was being sold to these two franchises. Well, CBC doesn't have an investigative bureau uh, looking at cheese smuggling, per se. This began as a police corruption story, of all things. And we learned of an officer, a police officer from the Niagara region, Canadian police officer who was arrested in Buffalo. He was charged with a conspiracy to smuggle more than half a million dollars worth of anabolic steroids, Valium, a conspiracy to smuggle those across the border into Canada. So instantly we paid attention to that. But as we have dug down more into allegations involving this particular officer, we have learned that the investigation has expanded. And there are allegations that a number of officers were teaming up with other civilians in some sort of cheese scam, allegedly, moving cheaper American cheese across the border, reselling it to pizzerias and restaurants uh, across southern Ontario. And presumably the investigation is ongoing. It is indeed. We're told that within the next week or two, we are going to learn the results. There may be some disciplinary charges, but they could also be criminal charges. Dave, explain why cheese would be smuggled in. I mean, you know, we understand contraband drugs or cigarettes or alcohol, but why U.S.-made mozzarella? Deep Throat always said, follow the money. Um, because of trade tariffs, mozzarella and brick cheese in the United States sells at about half the price it does on the Canadian side. I mean, it's cheaper because of tariffs that Canadians impose on imports and also protections for the Canadian dairy farmers and cheese producers. There are restrictions on moving American cheese here, and the price difference is almost 100%. We're told this mozzarella by the caseload for about $120, $130 in the U.S., and it sells for 250 here in Canada. So load up a truck, move 20 cases, and you can make thousands of dollars per shipment. How uh, does the taste actually compare between Canadian mozzarella and U.S. mozzarella? Well, I will confess I haven't done the taste test. Um, <laughs> but according to Super Mario's pizza owner, who says he turned down the American cheese after trying some of it, Canadian cheese apparently is... Uh, higher quality, they say, and therefore, at least the Super Mario, he said, no thanks, not interested. And is this whole episode affecting uh, the pizza shops in question, Super Mario's and, and Zeppi's? How, how's business there? Uh, they're all doing good business. The thing that really infuriates them is the fact that they are seeing competitors selling large pizzas for much reduced prices, and it's you know raised questions about, well, how is it that you know a place can serve a large pizza for half the price that they're able to produce it? So there's lots of speculation and innuendo and finger-pointing going on between pizza shops, everybody hoping that the police will move quickly to try to shut this down. CBC News reporter Dave Seglin's on the trail of cheese smugglers in Niagara Falls, Canada, is the answer to our geo-quiz. Good to speak with you. Thank you. Good. Thank you. Earlier this week, we reported on a new cloud classification called Undulatus Asperatus, and we asked for your cloud photos. We got several great picks, including Samuel Jones from Michigan City 
and Greg Trudson's from Phoenix. You can see those cloud photos and many more cloud pics on our Facebook page or at theworld.org. You're listening to The World from PRI, Public Radio International. PRI's The World is supported by WGBH and Masterpiece. The saga continues at 165 Eaton Place, and the lives of masters and servants have never been so captivating as new arrivals make their mark and dark secrets are revealed. A new season of Upstairs, Downstairs, Sunday, October 7th at 9, 8 Central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. In Haiti, the environment has rarely been near the top of any government's list of priorities. So perhaps it's no surprise that even small steps to protect the environment under current President Michel Martelly have brought conflict. But it's likely that no one expected that one of those conflicts would turn deadly. The violence happened recently in one of Haiti's two national parks, a roughly 11-square-mile patch of land not far from the country's capital. The world's Amy Bracken has our story. The sound of peeping frogs is all that penetrates the darkness on a recent night at Haiti's Parc La Visite. The national park is barely 15 miles from Port-au-Prince, but it feels a world away from Haiti's crowded and crumbling capital. More than a mile high, clouds wrap around a mountainside, shrouding pine groves, broadleaf forests, waterfalls, and caves. It's hard to imagine this peaceful and remote setting as the front line of a battle, But since President Michel Martelly began his new environmental protection effort, that's literally what it's become. The police came and said, don't you recognize that you've been asked to leave? I said, yes, but we have nowhere to go. Marilou Snor is one of several hundred Haitians who live in the park. She was here the day this summer when the police came to evict her and her neighbors. They said they'd give us $1,200, but I said that can do nothing for us. We protested and the police fired tear gas. We threw rocks and they shot bullets. They destroyed our houses and killed four people. The violence was part of an aggressive crackdown on squatters in the park, but the residents resisted in part because it has never been made clear who can be here and what they can do. Even the boundaries of the park itself are undefined. People have been living on this land since at least the 1930s. The area was declared a national park, and residents were ordered to leave in the 1980s. But the order was never enforced. We've been here for three generations. Now the state comes and kicks me off the land, me, a landowner and elderly resident. 75-year-old Emmanuel Xavier insists he has title to his land, granted in 1942. And he says it's about all his family has. This little sickle and that little wheel are what allow us to eat and drink. Besides that, there's nothing but the earth we work. The anger runs deep among the park's residents. But at least some of the neighbors are happy to see the government finally try to protect the park. Heavy rains come often here this time of year. And whenever they do, Winthrop Addy fears floods and landslides will follow. Addy runs an inn on land just below the park. He says those living up the hill are destroying the land and drinking water of everyone below them by growing crops, defecating, burying their dead, and cutting trees in the watershed. Haiti has become like a sand castle, melting at every rainfall, because people are doing things everywhere as they want. It's a total anarchy. Addy says his father bought land in the mid-1900s and pushed for the area uphill to be protected. 
Eight years ago, he co-founded an organization that plants trees and hosts environmental education camps for children here. Addy says letting people live in the park sacrifices the greater good for the interests of a few. How can you compare five, six hundred people to four million people? These people have to move from the watersheds. It's not about abusing poor peasants. It's about restoring some order and harmony in the country. Addy says President Martelly is the first national leader to make protecting the environment a priority, and he's very glad to see it. But some question whether the government's get-tough approach in the park is really about protecting the environment and the common interest. When the state decided to remove people from the park, it created all kinds of suspicions. Yves-André Wainwright served as Haiti's Minister of the Environment under three previous presidents. He says the actions of the current administration are inconsistent. No one knows where the boundaries of the park are. There are other zones that are very rich and important and on which the state is silent. I've identified eight water sources in the area. So why remove people from just one source? The park fight has touched yet another nerve in Haiti's longstanding rift between rich and poor. And it isn't the only flashpoint among the government's new environmental initiatives. There's conflict over a crackdown on dumping trash in Port-au-Prince's streets and canals and over a new ban on the sale of some plastic bags. But so far, the battle over Parc La Visite is rousing the most passion and has the highest stakes. A park resident says there has been no further negotiations on clearing the park since the summer's violence. But government spokesman Adi Jean Gardy says the eviction effort will continue. We have allowed destruction of the environment to go on for too long. Now people are angry because of the unfortunate incident in the park. But all will be resolved through dialogue. And I think we also need to educate the squatters. Jean Gardy says some squatters might be offered environmental protection jobs in the park while the rest are moved out. But residents say they won't move until they're given new places to live and reparations for the killings. For The World, I'm Amy Bracken, Port-au-Prince. You can see pictures from Haiti's Parc La Visite. Amy sent us a slideshow. It's at theworld.org. A hop away from Haiti, in Jamaica, you'll find guitarist Ernest Wranglin. He turned 80 this year. One of the first big pop hits to come out of Jamaica, My Boy Lollipop by Millie Small. Ernest Wranglin played guitar on the session, and he became a fixture in the island ska and reggae scene for years. He was the man with the axe on many sessions at the famed Studio One Records label in Kingston. But Studio One was his money gig. Ernest Wranglin can play bubblegum ska in his sleep. For the past 20 years or so, Wranglin has refused to be pinned down by ska, reggae, rocksteady. He looks for space to improvise. That's a tune called Manenberg on Ernest Wranglin's just-released CD. It was written by South African jazz piano legend Abdullah Ibrahim some years ago. The Wranglin version is much more recent. Last year, he played at the High Sierra Music Festival in Northern California. Wranglin traveled without a Jamaican ensemble, so the festival put together a strong backing band for him. Wranglin and his fellow players clicked and decided to record this album, Avila, during the festival. The session happened in three days, and you're hearing a taste of the great results. We'll leave you with more of Ernest Wranglin covering Manenberg. We've got his videos at theworld.org. You should check out how nimble the 80-year-old is. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. I tweet, 
at Marco Werman. We'll be back tomorrow. is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives. GatesFoundation.org, the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, by the Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs and their innovations to solve the world's most pressing problems at skoll.org, and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. MacFound.org. PRI Public Radio International.